1: In the brief, but hopefully glorious history of this might get uncomfortable, we have dedicated large portions of previous episodes talking about celebrities and notable public figures and how there's been an increasing amount of people coming out in those positions talking about their mental health, their depression, their battles with anxiety, and in particular, What we want to talk about today is uh, something that happened at the time of this recording last week, where one of the most, I suppose, successful and famous tennis players in the entire world, her name is Naomi Osaka, made a surprise announcement to pull out of the French Open at the last minute. And Whitney and myself have been paying attention to not only Naomi's announcement, but the response and the backlash to her decision it's been really interesting whitney to to track this story because it's incredibly rare for an athlete indeed an athlete of her magnitude and success to withdraw from a major competition a major tournament for mental health reasons i think so often we see athletes pulling out of things like the super bowl or the nba finals wimbledon etc for physical injuries, the interesting thing about this and what we're going to get into with the ramifications of this choice is this is the first time I've ever heard about a professional athlete withdrawing from competition for, let's just call it, for lack of a better word, a mental injury, right? Their physical injuries are like, okay, she pulled her calf muscle or tore her ACL or dislocated her shoulder. Of course she can't compete. But the thing that makes this so interesting is the precedent that it is setting for an athlete to say, I'm not competing because my mental health is more important than the money. the mental, My mental health is more important than the trophy. And my goodness, the responses have been fascinating. So first and foremost, we want to direct you, dear listener, to our website, which is wellevator.com. It's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com, where we will link to all of the articles, continuing research materials, anything we mentioned today for you to go even deeper down the rabbit hole on this subject, we'll have it all there for you at the podcast section at wellevator.com. That being said, Witt, I pulled up an article from the Washington Post that talked about the response to Naomi is among a larger generation of tennis stars talking about the intersection of mental health and racism. It's really, really interesting So again, just to go back, Naomi Osaka is 23 years old, one of the most successful tennis players. After she withdrew from competition, the French Open fined her $15,000 for pulling out of the post-match news conference. And apparently, if you participate in one of these tournaments, you are, I guess, contractually required to participate in media sessions. So the first domino here was that she decided she didn't want to participate in a post-match news conference. So they fined her $15,000. And said that larger penalties would follow. So in response to them fining her, she withdrew from the tournament completely. Like she was just like, I'm out. And in a subsequent Twitter post, she explained that she has been struggling for years with bouts of depression and that talking to a room full of journalists about tennis was going to cause her serious anxiety. So interestingly, major, major sports stars, people like Stephen Curry, who's a point guard for the Golden State Warriors. Venus Williams, others replied in solidarity with her for speaking out for her mental health and prioritizing that over money, over accolades, et cetera. But in addition, there's been some other tennis superstars like Sloane Stevens, Coco Gauff, and Frances Tiafoe who've been speaking openly about racial justice and mental health. In particular, Stevens talked about her regret for deciding to quarantine for a tennis match in a tournament she was in, instead of attending her grandmother's funeral, right? So prioritizing her career over family. And in a post there, I guess there's an Instagram series called Behind the Racket. Coco Goff, who's 17 year old, talked about the pressures of being a teenage phenom, right? You know, she talked about like, you know, in my entire life, I was always the youngest to accomplish things and be successful, which added to the pressure and the hype that I didn't want. And that as a young person, it adds even more pressure because you feel like you need to do well at everything. And so it's interesting that these, these young athletes are talking about the importance of openness and their personal challenges and their successes. And it's really setting a major precedent about you know players not just having conversations among themselves, but talking about it in a public forum like Twitter or in the media. So Serena Williams jumped in on this and talked about the risks of speaking out for black tennis players. In that how she's spoken about how she's felt underappreciated, unheard, and undervalued as a black woman in the tennis tournaments. And this goes back to a 2018 incident that happened in the U.S. Open where Serena Williams got into an intense argument. I remember seeing this footage of an umpire. And later on, they published cartoons of her, basically characterizing her as the angry black woman. There were racist caricatures of her, like having a pacifier in her mouth as a young black woman throwing a tantrum. And now, in reaction, people are talking about Naomi Osaka as being a diva and being petulant and not being appreciative of her status and her success. And, like, how dare she withdraw from this tournament? And it's really interesting, Whitney. Again, this article in the Washington Post, it's a long one, but I think it brings up this interesting conversation as I volley the ball back to you. We're making tennis references. It's like, you know, why is it that We don't allow people in certain positions to do this. Like, This is a human being, Naomi Osaka, who has clearly had a history of struggling with depression and anxiety, and somehow she's being vilified. And the question is, why? Is it that she's costing her sponsors money? She's costing the French Open money because they're not going to get the viewership because she's one of the superstars in the sport? And they're trying to be punitive and fine her because she's going against the grain of what she ought to do. And maybe as a pro athlete, she's just supposed to suck it up and play. I mean, there's been some really interesting responses to her decision. It's troubling to me, not because the troubling part isn't her colleagues coming to her her support and saying, good for you. I think that's commendable. The troubling part is the people who stand to lose a lot of money for her withdrawing are the ones that are vilifying her for it. And I think it goes back to this toxic aspect of entertainment and capitalism that if an athlete doesn't want to show up and play to protect their health, if an actor or actress doesn't want to come on set and do the scene because they're protecting their mental health, they get fucking railed for it. And so, A, I want to commend Naomi Osaka for doing this because she could have made – I mean, I just want to kind of look at it. Like what is a winner of the tennis – like how much does the winner of the French Open get? like, I want to see this real quick. So men's and women's singles champions earn approximately $1.88 million. Like kudos to this young woman for saying, I don't give a fuck about $2 million. I'm protecting my mental health. Like that is, I mean, Whitney, that's incredible. The precedent she's setting for so many reasons, but also again, the backlash of the people standing to lose money calling her a diva, calling her a spoiled brat, whatever it is. So I want to bring this up because I, I think it's interesting to see if maybe her doing this is going to set a trend for more athletes taking a stand for not just their physical health, but their mental health. I think it's a really courageous and cool moment for this to be happening.
0: It is. It brings up a lot. There's there's a lot to reflect upon here. and And I've been reading through some of the articles on this to better understand it. One thing that comes up is that she is a woman of color and not just black. She's also part Japanese, I think half. And what's interesting about that in particular is that it's not just about racism from potential, you know, white sponsors or organizers or whoever's in charge trying to tell her what to do. But she's young. She's a woman. And culturally, this behavior is very frowned upon. In fact, one of the articles on The Wire, which we'll link to in the show notes along with anything else we mentioned today at WellEvator.com, is that the norms in native Japanese culture frown upon speaking out which could exacerbate anxiety and vulnerability. And for several years, she's been explaining that speaking with the members of the media during press conferences causes her anxiety. And sometimes she feels like she's being bullied. She has alluded to being shy, feeling really depressed after a match. I mean, no wonder she's going through an enormous amount of pressure coupled with cultural obligations, gender obligations as well. This article says that there may be an implicit expectation that women accommodate questions no matter how inappropriate the questions are or uncomfortable they may feel, while male athletes may be accommodated for remaining silent. So I think this is an incredibly important thing because it's going against gender norms, culture norms, youth there's a lot of factors here. And and given her age, did you say she was 23 or did I make that she's up? She's
1: 23, yeah.
0: Okay. So I think she's technically Gen Z. I think the oldest Gen Z person is, in, is 24. And so I've noted through my observations of Gen Z culture is a lot of them are at this point in their own way, not exactly due to the amount of success and fame that she's acquired, but... There is this trend amongst that generation in particular of saying like my mental health is so much more important than these other factors. And I think that's incredible, but it's not that simple to your point, Jason. I mean, there's, there's a lot of factors and, and, you know, with the limited amount of knowledge that I have about Naomi, I I don't know, like is $2 million a big deal to her? Right? Like, does she have a ton of money? So, you know, for some people, that's a a small amount. Maybe she has enough and she's like, I don't need extra money. I don't know about her financial situation. And only she could really speak about what it's like to say no or to turn down or to quit and all of that. But I just see this trend in which people in her generation are. Are willing to sacrifice a lot for their mental health. And I think that's incredible. And I think it's important. And, you know, it's a great example, hopefully. But then the question becomes like similar to what we've talked about with Bo Burnham's special and my continued observations, because (laughs) this is how TikTok works the algorithm really hones into the things you're interested in. There are so many videos about Bo Burnham's special inside on my TikTok feed. And there's a number of people talking about how their for you page as it's called there is flooded with it. And everyone's like, is this just me or a lot of people seeing this? I'm not sure, but like there's just so much. So whether the algorithm is inflating my perception of how many people are talking about this, I'm not sure. But from my current perspective, Jason, like the number of Gen Z people that are commenting on that special and how it resonates with them, which is basically like, I feel the same way as him. And Bo Burnham talks about, he's a millennial technically, but so it might not be fully generational, but it seems like more Gen Z people or or young millennials are talking about this how they can really relate to what he's talking about. And, and he's similar in this sense, even though he's a white male and and an, a performer, not an athlete, he's similar in the sense that he took a break. And, and what's interesting, though, is it seemed like it was okay. From what I know of him, he just stopped performing for five years, or however long it was. And then he just came back and every and now he's being applauded for speaking out about you know what he has in that special. And so it's interesting, Jason, like is it because he's white? Is it because he's male? Is it because he's a little bit older? Is it because he's in a different career that he was a uh, quote allowed to or it was acceptable for him to take that big of a break? Maybe that there's a difference in that athletes tend to have a lot tied to their youth. I'm not sure about tennis. But it seems like a lot of athletes are in their primes at certain ages. I mean, we look at someone like a completely different sport, but Tom Brady, whose name I almost forgot, many people are commenting on his age all the time. And it's like this huge deal that he's still playing. It's like there's so much ageism and, and perhaps it's just from the biological side effects of that. But maybe it's different in the sense that Naomi is young and people are afraid that she won't be as like successful if she takes a break and comes back later, which is very different from Bo Burnham, who's a, a white male comedian who essentially could work for the rest of his life and that would be acceptable. But I bring up his special, Jason, more from the generational perspective of how much that's resonating with people. And I think we're At the beginning or the early stages of this big trend, and we see this with people quitting jobs, which is happening right now in mid-2021, I believe from the data that I've seen that there's a huge movement of people quitting because they know they deserve more money or they're not happy with their work conditions. And I think that's really exciting. Hopefully, that'll be a change. But on the other side of it, there's almost like this bleakness because there isn't quite a solution yet. So people like Naomi are still being bullied. They're still being punished. They're still experiencing a lot of this pressure to keep going, even though people are basically you know, screaming for help. And I think that's another element of her situation, also Bo Burnham's, where it's like, you can watch that special and ask yourself, hmm, either A, he's really needs help and he's asking for it through the Netflix special. And B, as we discussed in our episode about that, which came out last week, I think, or was that this week? I think that was this week, a few days ago that that episode came out. As I said there, it's a reflection of what's going on with people in that a- younger age range, younger millennials and older Gen Zs of like their mental health is declining. So maybe he in a way and maybe Naomi in a way are both like, hey, listen, this is not just about us. We're speaking out because our generations and our age groups need help. And we need to set that example. I don't know if Naomi thought about it that way, but I think the response is lifting the veil. And that really needs a lot of Focus. And one issue that I had when you brought up the Washington Post, Jason, I also pulled up an article, but I think it's a different one. I found one called How to Know When You Need a Mental Health Break and Ways to Make the Most of It. And it starts off talking about Naomi as an example and then gets into how to identify when you need a break and some tips and all of that. And I kind of felt like the tips weren't helpful at all, especially because. It almost felt like they were oversimplifying it. And this is part of it too. This is a much bigger issue. As you know, Jason struggles with depression, anxiety, overwhelm, burnout, like they don't get solved that quickly. And what's weird about this article was w- which was written by an Asian woman. I don't know how old she is. I would guess maybe a millennial, but total guess there. She gives some tips and points out some interesting facts, but the tips are learn to differentiate between good and bad stress. Great. Identify red flags, like when you're feeling burnt out and exhausted. Normalize taking care of your mental health. And that point was like, well, it's not just about the individuals normalizing it. We need to normalize it in our entire culture. And that's part of the issue with Naomi. It's like the whole... French Open is the one that's not normalizing it. You know what I mean? So it's not like you can be like, I'm going to normalize mental health. Like your corporation, the business you work for, like the school that you go to, like what your family environment, like it's it's not just about you. It's a collective normalization that has to happen. And then the article says, give yourself permission to rest. And it's like, okay, well, Naomi, is it Naomi or Naomi? Naomi. Okay. Okay she's trying to give herself permission to rest. And she's being vilified for it. She's being bullied. She's being targeted. Like, So you can't just give yourself permission to rest. That to me is a weird way for this article. And I I understand the desire, but sometimes giving yourself permission to rest means you can't work for months, maybe even years. I mean, that's the other element of Bo Burnham. Like, I think he said he took five years off. It was at at least that amount of time, maybe four. I could be wrong. But many years that he took off from his work, and he was fortunate to be able to, like I said. But he came back, and the first thing he did after coming back from time off, from what I know, is this special that's basically... Alluding to the fact that he still has mental health issues. So the big problem here is like, you can't just take a week off. You can't just take a month off. You can't just skip some performance, some, you know, tournament. Like, it's not that simple. And I think there's a big oversimplification of mental health. And that's part of the problem. It's not just take a pill. It's not just sleep in on the weekends. It's not just you know quit your job and go travel the world like it doesn't get fixed that easily and that's why we we all collectively need to start normalizing this prioritizing this and figuring out solutions that are less surface level and a lot deeper so that we can get to the core of the issue and i think part of the issue here is that naomi is black and japanese black and Asian, right? And her cultures have gone through some horrific things that don't just get fixed overnight, don't get even fixed in a year. It's going to take us years and years of work. So she can't just take a quick break. And if she does, if she chooses to, she could certainly get back into playing tennis. You know, From your research, Jason, I don't know if that's what she seems to be wanting to do. Is she trying to quit entirely? I don't know what exactly cuz I haven't dug in that far but my point being like we can't just gloss over it and be like oh like black lives matter why don't you take a month off why don't you skip this tournament it's not like she can just come back after a month and everything's going to be okay
1: there's two things I want to say in response to that one I think that there is a particularly with athletes particularly with athletes there there's a notion that they're like robots right? That, well, you got to this level because you did this thing or this set of skills over and over and over and over and over and over and over over till you mastered them, right? I mean, if you think about how we perceive athletes in our culture, especially successful ones, million-dollar athletes, ones with endorsement deals, we treat them as other than human. We don't treat them like human beings. Really think about it. We treat them like they're automatons, like they're robots, like they're machines. Oh, so-and-so got injured. Man, when's he going to come back? When's he going to come back? You know, rushing them to come back. Rushing them. Why rushing them to come back? Because superstar athletes sell tickets. Like another level of this, Whitney, is the fact that the great majority of the controlling interests in professional sports, the owners of teams, the people who own things like Formula One, radically, and this is no surprise to anyone, it shouldn't be, are all older, rich, white men, all billionaires. It's a billion. There's some really interesting articles. We'll link to, there's one in the show notes that talks about the billionaires club that are owning professional sports. For example, in the National Basketball Association, the NBA, the only majority controlling owner in the entire league who is black is Michael Jordan. One who is arguably the most successful basketball player of all time. Like Something is very broken with that system, too, when the majority of the controlling owners are all older white men. Now, what does this mean? It means that there's a system set in place where, yes, we're going to pay you millions of dollars as an athlete. You should be happy with that. You've worked hard your whole life. Here's a few million dollars or tens of millions of dollars or even hundreds of millions in a contract. I mean, some athletes are getting hundreds of millions of dollars in their contract. But that's leveraged against billions of dollars in revenue from TV deals, ticket sales, merchandise with jerseys with their names on it. So what I'm saying is if you don't play as an athlete and you're a superstar athlete, you are costing your owners and the people in charge of these organizations a lot of money and they do not like that. Let's just be real about it, right? So the pressure to force athletes to perform at a high level all the time and therefore dehumanize them is very real because there's a shit ton of money involved, right? And this really is about this is about levels too, isn't it? Because if you're a third stringer, you're a person who sits on the end of the bench and you're not a name, right? Naomi Osaka is a name. Serena Williams is a name. LeBron James is a name. These people who are at the top of their game pull out, Then you see the kind of reaction we get of of what Naomi chose to do. So again, it's also about fame. It's also about success. But ultimately, I hate to say it. I really think it's about money, Whitney. And people are pissed when successful superstar athletes like Naomi take a stand and say, you know what? I don't give a shit about the money and I'm going to do what's right for me. And I don't know. what. Well, when are you going to come back? I don't know. The other side of this, too, that I think is very important is I don't think that it is appropriate or right for people who have never experienced depression, suicidal ideation, anxiety, stress response, PTSD to comment or give advice to other people who are experiencing those things on what they ought to do. You should shut the fuck up. You should shut the fuck up. Like I true and I am channeling Bo Burnham right now. Right? Please shut the fuck up. Stop giving advice to people who are struggling with mental health disorders that you know nothing about. Stop it. If you're not a licensed professional who has seen dozens and dozens, hundreds of peoples, or you yourself are struggling with it and know what it's like, if you have never struggled with these things, how could you possibly understand? So anyone who's weighing in on Naomi Osaka or Serena Williams or me or anyone else, because I, you know, with all due respect, I get advice from people all the time, unsolicited advice. It's like, if you don't understand what it is like to go through this, please shut the fuck up. I'm complete with that statement right now.
0: And that's an important thing because as I was researching the response to Naomi, I found that. One in five U.S. adults experience some type of mental health condition, according to the American Psychiatric Association. And more than half of that population doesn't get treatment. And part of that is because people feel shame. They're afraid of being perceived as weak. They don't think that they're allowed to get treatment, or maybe it's overwhelming. I mean, this is something I've been reflecting a lot on recently, that sometimes, and myself included, it's really, really hard to just take the steps to get help. And I think you know this too, Jason. It's like getting diagnosed can be a really long journey. And if you have shame around that, if you have fear around that, that's a huge obstacle. Once you overcome it, Then you have to see if your insurance covers it. Then you have to find the right doctors. You probably have to get referrals. You have to go down this whole pipeline to get that help. Then you have to decide what you're going to do. Maybe you go on medication, but medication can be expensive. Or maybe it's something that you feel shame around. I mean, this is not an easy road. And there's actually a prevalence of mental health illness, according to research, that's higher amongst Females than males. And part of that is because of the social and economic difficulties that women face. Now, of course, Naomi might be very financially well off. You know, I found that she's earned more than $55 million last year, I guess 2020 alone. But socially and economically, Perhaps for her family, it's it just because she makes a lot of money doesn't mean that she doesn't have mental health challenges. Maybe she feels guilt. Maybe her family's suffering. It it's not like making money is easy. Certainly that gives her access to things that other people don't have access to. But if you have mental health, it doesn't matter how much money. If you have mental health issues, it doesn't matter how much money you're making. It can be hard just to get out of bed some days.
1: The thing that's interwoven in this though, Whitney, which I think is very real, right? Is to your point, money, success, fame, influence does not preclude you from struggling, obviously with depression, anxiety, suicidal ideation, et cetera. It doesn't. Money doesn't, it doesn't cure shit, but the difference, and we're talking about classism now, okay? We talked about the racism aspect of this, which is real, but the classism part, is also a huge part of this. Because if we think about not only the healthcare system, the privatized healthcare system in the United States of America, combined with the constant toxic capitalist pressure to pay your rent, pay your mortgage, pay your bills, take care of the kids, take care of the dogs, take care of the cats, okay, when someone has $55 million, they're not worried necessarily, let me just say this, about covering the rent and the mortgage and the food. When you are a person who is of lower income or middle income, who is going month to month, how the fuck do you set aside time to take care of your mental health when the constant pressure is there just to survive? Like that's a, this is a very real thing that we need to talk about because if you're, if you're a person who's a low income earner, even whatever the fuck, and you're just trying just to make ends meet, it is not a luxury to take a month off. It's not a luxury to take three months out of your life. You can't do it. You have people to feed. You have things to do. Like, let's just, I just want to get real about this. So the other level of this is when you are a person who is successful and rich, it doesn't preclude you from mental health struggles, but it does give you the freedom to deal with them without having to worry about putting food on the table and making sure the roof stays over your head. So the other level of challenge here is if you are a low-income person or you struggle to make ends meet, How the hell do you carve out time to deal with your mental health when the pressure is always there just to survive? Do we have programs in place in this country to assist people? We don't. Like, it's basically like you're on your own. Good luck. It's a broken system in the sense that we don't have enough support for our citizens who are struggling with mental health. Rich athletes and entertainers aside, for the average working American, we don't have systems in place. Like, it just it's sort of like, figure it out figure out how to pay for your meds, figure out how to pay for your therapy. Good luck to you. And it's no wonder there's so much addiction. It's no wonder there's so much suicide. It's no wonder people are struggling with because Naomi, while I think she is obviously giving us so much to consider in how we dehumanize professional athletes and dehumanize celebrities who struggle with this, we do need to be really honest about When you are a rich, successful person, you do have more freedom. I don't want to use the word luxury. You do have more freedom to address these things in a way because you're not struggling each month to survive. That's a big, big difference. So, you know, it's really becomes a question of what do we do then? Because this isn't something mental health and mental illness is not something that is relegated to one race, one color, one gender, one economic class it's a crisis that leaves us with more questions than answers right now truly because if we acknowledge that it is a crisis which it is what do we do about it because i'm not throwing pharmaceuticals under the bus but just telling people to go on meds and get therapy again you know the the advice that i get from people sometimes is like you clearly don't understand what this is like based on the advice you're giving me and and it's even scarier too when you've tried all of the things that have been suggested to you And you still feel this way. It's frightening. It is. When you, for years, have tried so many therapies and so many different solutions, and you still feel like you wanna die, you still feel like you wanna kill yourself, you still feel hopeless, it's even more frightening because you don't know what else to do. I'm speaking from my own experience when I say that, you know, where, and you feel even more exhausted because then it's like, what else do I do? If I've tried all of these things, And nothing necessarily seems to work long-term or it works and then the efficacy falls off and I still feel awful again. What I'm saying is this, to your point, Whitney, the comment you made about just take a month off. It's not, it doesn't work that way. It does not work that way. And I've said this before on previous podcasts, but I don't believe that serious mental health illness is something to be cured. I think it's something to be managed something to be understood, something to have the shame and the guilt removed from it so we can have really open conversations. So more than anything, I just think that Naomi and these other athletes, we've talked about Kevin Love, DeMar DeRozan, other athletes in the past few years speaking out about their mental health issues, this is critical because they're hum- we're all human beings here. But the emergence of, you know, success, fame, millions of dollars, toxic capitalism <sighs> It's hard, wit, because if you decide to quit your job for mental health reasons, like you're talking about a lot of these Gen Zers doing, and then it's like, okay, I feel maybe more space now to deal with this. But then the question is, then what? Because you still have to put food on the table, and you have student loans, and you have credit card debt. And so for a person in the U.S. or just in the world who's struggling with mental health, it's very hard. It's very hard. This is not easy. And to anyone who's listening who struggles, like, Love to you and kudos to you for fighting the fight because it's not easy. It's especially more difficult when you're struggling just to make ends meet, to even deal with your own health.
0: Yeah, and clearly shifts do need to happen and it's not easy and and it makes me reflect more and have compassion for people that choose to end their lives because they feel so trapped. If you are struggling with your mental health, that's hard enough if you have to leave your job, quit your job to take care of yourself because you can't work and then you have all you don't have the financial support to make ends meet like that's an incredible amount of pressure that some people just cannot handle. I don't know statistically, but I feel like I've just heard countless stories about people choosing to end their lives because of finances because they feel so stuck. And we talked about that serious generation hustle and and just the illegal means that people will resort to when they feel desperate or they don't feel like they have another option. And I think when we look at crime it'd be really interesting to see how much of it is related to mental health issues and racism of course like There's so many, and we've talked about this before too, with like gun violence, like a lot of these people are mentally disturbed or desperate or angry, and they don't know what to do. So they resort to horrific things that either end their lives, other people's lives or cause others great pain. And I don't know why we're not putting more emphasis like on these issues, Jason, because they're really affecting all of us and yet it's kind of like oh let's just ignore it let's just like push it away let's shame people like that was another element that i didn't know about what naomi went through how the french open like sent out that tweet showing like a picture of other athletes like well these people know what their assignment is or whatever it said and it's like that's so disgusting like who who approved that Social media post, who really thought that that was okay to publicly shame and compare someone? I mean, that is true bullying. And people booing her in the crowds, like, I mean, that's intense. That's really tough. So it's hard enough if you're facing an internal battle, but when that is exacerbated through an external response of shame and bullying at 23 years old, We've talked about how this happens with other celebrities as well. I mean, the Meghan Markle story was brought up in, I think, a New York Times response to what Naomi's going through. And they had to completely pull away from the family and go to another country. And fortunately, they had the the power, the fame and money to... Get by, although I think Prince Harry said they really weren't that financially off. It wasn't like it was super easy for them, relatively, but they had the support of Oprah. So it's kind of like <laughs> they're in a different league. And that in itself is a huge pr- privilege. They had connections, you know, they had people to stay with at like luxury, p- private, secure places where they could hide away and recover and work on other projects. And I appreciate that Prince Harry created the project with Oprah, which we've also covered on on this show, but not everybody is going to have that opportunity to your point jason and that's that I think is is an issue that really isn't discussed enough. It reminds me of an experience that I had when I was working at Apple, and I was really struggling with my mental health more than I I think even understood at the time. This was back in 2012, so almost 10 years ago. I was so anxious and exhausted because of the work hours. And it was so frustrating because I was trying to communicate that to the people that I worked with, mostly my managers or the people in charge of the team that I was on at Apple. And I remember feeling like they didn't understand me. I also, at that time i was working on this small team within the apple store and i was the only woman on that team and i felt really proud about it but i also got kind of discriminated against and i'm not trying to play victim i'm just saying like it's interesting reflecting on some of my own experiences one time i got kind of publicly shamed because i i think have i talked about this i feel like i have i wore short shorts to work once And I got pulled aside and asked to go home and change. And I was like, are you kidding me? Like, I'm not somebody. I I mean, nowadays, I think you could get by because it's like trendy. But maybe at the time, it wasn't as trendy to wear shorts at the length that I was wearing. I mean, I don't think my ass cheeks were hanging out or anything. They were just short. And I have enough discretion to have looked in the mirror and thought that that was acceptable. But when I got to work, my manager was like, hey, you can't wear those here. And I had to go to my team member who I I don't think was technically a manager. But again, I was on like this separate team within the company where I was training. I was was, uh, doing training talks, presentations at the Apple store. And I was like, I can't go home because I have to do a presentation. And they let me do it. But I felt so much shame and em- embarrassment the entire day for wearing those shorts, and it stayed with me for many years. And I think they actually sent out, like the next day, a mass email to the entire store that I worked at, say talking about dress code, and I felt so singled out and that's what I mean, like publicly shamed, even though they privately pulled me aside, I wondered how many people knew that they sent that email because of my shorts you know, and it was really embarrassing. And I, it was like, they probably wouldn't do that to a guy. And then I was the only girl on the team. And I remember there was some, I don't remember the details precisely, but there was some like indication that they were nervous about having me on the presentation team because I was a woman and would get emotional. I remember one day I was like really emotional and crying. I couldn't pull myself together and I had to go home early Clearly, for some mental health challenge that I was experiencing, and I felt so much shame and embarrassment, but I just wasn't able able to proceed through the day. And I was concerned for my job that I was going to get let go or or taken off that team because of my mental state. And I eventually quit the job because I was experiencing panic attacks and anxiety and burnout, exhaustion, And I felt so much shame for doing that. And I felt like they didn't understand. And I had to find a lot of courage and bravery to speak up and let them know. But I, it was such a rare thing back in 2012 that I didn't have any of the tools. And nobody guided me through it. Even though I was asking for help and expressing what I was going through, there wasn't a structure in place to support me. And had there been, I probably would have continued working there longer. I didn't really want to leave, but they weren't supporting me in a way that I was able to thrive in my job. And even though that's like on a small scale compared to something like this, and even though I have white privilege, I believe that part of that was related to my age. I was 10 years younger than now, you know, and I was a woman and I was the only woman there. And it was like, oh, well, she's weak. And that comes up in some of these articles the fear to speak out about mental health challenges because of your gender, because of your age. You don't want to be perceived as weak, so you keep it to yourself. And I think I did that and bottled it up. And then one day I just couldn't keep it in anymore and I had a panic attack. And that's what led me to quit my job. What if I had been supported differently? Maybe I wouldn't have quit then. And maybe other people had experienced that too. That's what I wonder as well. I don't think anybody knew why I quit. And it probably was never discussed. And I also wondered, like, what was the response behind my back during that process? Like, I was so nervous about what other people thought of me. I was so afraid to be perceived as weak for leaving f- for mental health reasons. And I think I've carried a lot of that shame with me for many years. And that's part of this discussion, too, is it's it's not always just easy to leave. I mean, I've been bullied at, at jobs too and that's sat with me ever since. Like these things are, are have a longer ripple effect and that's part of this too, Jason. It's like the more that I examine my own challenges with anxiety and feelings of depression and shame, I have to think about all of those instances, all of those trauma responses, all of those scars. And many people are walking around either bottling it up or living with the scars and blaming themselves too. This comes up in an article I saw in Forbes, which is outlining what we can learn from Naomi and about advocating for our own mental health. And one of the tips is to avoid self-shaming. Well, it sounds logical. It makes sense on like an intellectual level, but... It's not that easy to avoid self shaming. I think that's actually one of the hardest and most natural things to do is to blame yourself, to think of yourself as weak, to think of yourself as selfish. And, you know, this Forbes says, like, when you refuse to subject yourself to unhealthy workplace demands, I mean, that that was exactly what was happening at Apple. It was like, it was a great job. Overall, I have very positive things to say about my time at Apple, but. They did have unhealthy workplace demands and they would not shift them for me, even though I knew they could, Jason. That was like part of the reason I knew I had to leave. I know they could have changed, but they didn't. They refused to. I tried asking. I I was looking and it was like the response was, this is the system. This is the way that it is. And I think that's still happening to this day in many organizations. It's just the way that it is. And, and that's why self-shaming tends to happen. Because when you express your needs and someone says, well, that's the way it is, then you think there's something wrong with you. When the French Open says, well, everybody else on the team, everyone else, you know, all the other tennis players are participating in the way that we've asked them to. They know what their job duties are. You're singled out. Of course, you're going to self-shame because you think there's something wrong with you you're ostracized you're you're targeted you're bullied and this far this Forbes article again it's nice that they're outlining this but it's not that simple it's not simple to set boundaries it's not simple to avoid feeling this way and to your point Jason like one of the tips is consider leaving the job and not everybody is going to have that luxury when i left apple i went and stayed with my parents for a few months Till I had my shit figured out, not everybody has that opportunity or access. Some people do not have someplace else to go.
1: And really what it reinforces to me, Whitney, in your context, in Naomi's context, in all the contexts we've talked about, is that there's this bizarre expectation when you are at work that you can't show real human emotions. You can't actually be the full version of who you are. You have to be a myopic, compartmentalized slice of who you actually are because work needs to be done. What needs to happen? Money needs to be made, everyone. We need to push you as hard as we need to fucking push you. Don't you cry. Don't you kick and scream. Don't show us your humanity because that takes away. And it's very uncomfortable, right? Because in that context, in a office... I remember at certain jobs where I knew that I was having an emotional episode, a, like like a mental health breakdown, and I would go into the stairwell and cry, praying that people would not come and see me crying in the stairwell or going to the bathroom that, quote, nobody uses and putting myself in the stall and having a, a breakdown and cry in the stall. And same thing. I, I'm hoping no one comes in. I would imagine, Whitney, that kind of stuff happens a lot more than is publicly spoken about. Now, why is that? Probably because people are being pushed way too hard in the toxic capitalist system we have. And B, that in all of my work experience, just to mirror what you said, Whitney, it's just it's an unspoken thing. You don't bring those things to work. You deal with those things when you get home. You need to have a breakdown. You wait till you get home. You don't you don't do it in the middle of the office. Why? Cuz it's not acceptable. And and also there's no invitation in work culture for people to display that part of their humanity. It's not acceptable and it's not invited and there's no safe container to express those things. So you go into a stairwell, you go into a bathroom or you fucking quit if you have the luxury to do that. It's a damaged broken system that doesn't allow people to be people. You're a worker, you're an employee, you're not a person. You're an employee and when you're here you play a role and you deal with all your other shit at home. I think that is fucked. Now a, a response might be, "Well, oh, so we're just supposed to like let people have breakdowns at work. Nothing'll ever get done." I would venture to say if you let people have a healthier, more supported, more loving culture at work, they'd get more done cuz they'd have their humanity acknowledged and they'd feel safe to do their best work. If you said, "Hey, you know what? I need I need to like go take 30 minutes, And just, you know, be, oh, what's wrong? You know, and like, not a shame or, or a secretiveness around it, like having an open dialogue with a boss, with a colleague, with a coworker. I mean, this really gets to the root, whether it's athletics, whether it's working for a corporate giant like Apple, Whitney, that I find it bizarre. Don't you? I mean, think about it. You're not allowed to act like that at work. You're just not allowed to. It's this bizarre social requirement we've created in the capitalist system of you're just not allowed to show that part of yourself. It's, it's, it's bizarre to me, but it's not bizarre when you think about that doesn't help with efficiency, does it? If you're taking a half hour to go have a cry session with a, with a trusted coworker or have a heart to heart with your boss, well, things aren't getting done then. I mean, really, if we think about it, it is the constant pressure to produce to be efficient, to make more money, and to succeed. And that system is fucking broken, and it is dehumanizing, and I will venture to say it's actually killing people. It's fucking killing people.
0: Yeah, I'm sure it is. There's another article I found in the Seattle Times written by Marcus Harrison Green, who is also reflecting on his experiences with this and how... He had a fear of jeopardizing his career. So he didn't tell his employer that he needed a break. He broke down in tears. He relocated. He was able to spend some time alone, but he felt like he let the community down. And he is a Black man that felt like maybe he was letting the Black community down, you know, and he got very depressed and went through a lot of spirals and was even contemplating suicide. So at the end of his article, he says, our society is literally dying for the truth. Honesty is the one thing that publicly acknowledging your mental health struggles will guarantee you. And it's it's rough. The, this whole thing, again, when you look at the numbers Of people that are suffering, it's probably even more. I mean, those are just coming from polls that people are willing to fill out, you know? He cited another one about a study that found that 62% of people dread our bosses' contempt should we ask for time off to recalibrate our mental health. So if people can't even ask their bosses for help, like how many people are, are keeping it a secret from their friends and their family? How many people are are not even acknowledging it within themselves? I think this is clearly a huge, huge issue. Millions of people are suffering through, and many of which are likely doing it silently. And on this show, we don't always have a solution. Part of it is simply just talking about it and encouraging you, the listener, to look into this further and to ask yourself, What do you need? What are the people around you need? Who might be suffering in silence around you? Are you suffering in silence? What have you gone through? Can you reflect on the trauma of all of this? There are some incredible mental health resources at the end of the Seattle Times article I just mentioned. They list off a few. One that has come up a few times is Mental Health America. It's It's a nonprofit. So they actually have as many of these organizations and nonprofits do, uh, an opportunity to donate. So if you yourself are not struggling, consider donating so that you can help people who are. And do your research. Make sure you're, you're donating to a place that you align with and that feels like it's actually making the difference important to you. That, to me, feels like a step. I think speaking out about this, if you have the courage Clearly, listening to shows like this, paying attention to media like ours is another step, sharing this around. And then we just have to continue advocating. I think, just like racism, it's really about raising your awareness, understanding what people are going through, understanding what you're going through, donating where you can. As I said, that comes up a lot when I'm studying racism. There's just there's so many places to put your money and getting involved. If it's not financial, maybe it's volunteering and at the very least checking in with your loved ones. That's not going to solve it. you know. I check in with Jason often when he's struggling and, and I don't believe that that's changing his state, but it's maybe at least adding a little brightness to the dark days. And I think just removing a lot of this stigma and normalizing it at least gives us hope that more people will feel the courage and bravery to seek help.
1: One thing I want to say about, you know, I think bringing more humanity and compassion and realness to this conversation, to the workplace, to our social programs, you know, I would like to advocate and find out how we can have, you know, clinically diagnosed mental health issues as part of the, the, unemployment system and the benefit system, that if a person is clinically depressed, suicide, anxious, bipolar, etc., that if it is severe enough and they cannot work, that state programs are more supportive and more tailored to supporting those human beings. Like we talk about solutions, right? I just wanted to mention a few that came into my mind. I want to personally advocate for more of those. So that's more available to people instead of knowing I'm at a very dire place in my mental health, and I cannot work right now to make sure that we have support structures in our state and federal systems that are doing more for those people, A. B, I don't know how the hell this is going to happen, but having much more supportive structures in the workplace so people feel supported, feel safe, feel the ability to speak without fear of retribution or being let go. You know, because that's one of the things too, Whitney. When I when I think about potentially an an, an in person gig, or if I end up you know working in an in person setting with a team, I'm afraid, and I'm afraid because I have been working for myself for eleven years, been indoors ninety five percent of the time the last fourteen months at the time of this recording. I'm afraid if I go to a job structure or a gig structure where I'm working with other people outside of my house, that if I have a manic episode or I have a breakdown or I need to cry or I'm having, what do I do? Because again, going to the stairwell or going to the bathroom to cry my eyes out for 20 minutes didn't work back then. It's not going to work now. So I just want to say that this is an effort to your point where we need to stop acting like this doesn't exist. We need to start humanizing people, no matter their income, no matter their social status, race, gender, they're human beings who are in pain and we need to support one another. So again, I think that that somehow having a more supportive dialogue in the workplace around this and acting like we are the humans we are, I think is a good first step. And- you know again i'm i'm a little bit terrified but maybe me being in that environment is an opportunity to walk my walk and that if i'm having issues with that that i speak openly and honestly about it no matter the consequence you know and if i get let go fuck it but i think it's important that 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 we start having these real conversations because acting like this isn't happening is making it worse it's making it all very very worse so love to naomi osaka love to all the people who are listening to this who are struggling with mental illness, who are afraid to speak up about it for fear of retribution or fear of being misunderstood. We have to use our voices. We have to find the courage within ourselves to speak our truth and bring this to the light because it's been in the darkness for way, way, way too long. That being said, we always love hearing from you, dear listener, your thoughts, your feelings, your musings, your responses. If this episode resonated with you, if you have any thoughts or feelings you want to share with us, you can always email us Our direct email is hello at wellevator.com. And you can also go again to our website, wellevator.com, to find all of the resources and articles we mentioned here today. And again, Whitney and I have something that is a little bit lighter. (laughs) Actually, a lot. We say a lot lighter. If this was like, if this was like, a dense pot pie of mental health examination, we have like a light fluffy fondue waiting for you with our second podcast, which we just launched recently called this hits the spot. And it is all about featuring our joys and our happiness for the things that are touching our lives in terms of products, supplements, services, things we're excited about on your wellness journey that are assisting us on our path. So this hits the spot is all about sharing those resources with you. We make it fun It's light. There are jingles. We tend to get slap happy as we do when Whitney and I spend a lot of time together. There's a lot of slap happiness. So we will link to This Hits the Spot again in our show notes. And it's only available at this point to our newsletter subscribers and our patrons from Patreon. So you got to be a newsletter subscriber. Whitney's laughing. I don't know why.
0: (laughs) Because now I'm wishing that we had titled the podcast Slap Happy. (laughs)
1: Oh. That could have been good. That could have been, been good. That could have been good. That's true. That's true.
0: But we wanted a name that was similar to this podcast. So it was either gonna have the word comfort in it or <laughs> the word this. And we went we went with this. I like this hits the spot, but Slap Happy is pretty good.
1: Yeah, and I think you should subscribe, dear listener, to the newsletter. And again, you could support us on Patreon. We have some great patrons there that help keep us going because the logo itself is dope. Whitney designed the logo for this hits the spot, and it's an incredibly
0: sort of I assembled it. assets. Yeah, assembled is a better way of saying it. It's temporary. One of the things that we're going to do as our funds on Patreon increase is hire a designer to do a custom version of the current this hits the spot logo, which is. We we wanted a French bulldog involved. I couldn't find quite the right one. So I went with a pug who's eating a donut. So if you become a patron, you could actually help us decide what artwork to go with and make, you know, little adjustments to it. And it's only two dollars a month minimum. So if if you can make that work, we would be grateful so that we can make a lot more work for you. And we will link to This Hits the Spot. There's actually a little landing page for it where you can choose whether just to subscribe to the newsletter or go on to Patreon. We will put that in the show notes along with everything else that we talked about today at wellevator.com. One more time, that's spelled W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. Don't forget about our YouTube channel as well. There's a lot. That's why we have show notes. The show notes have a full transcript. They have links to everything so you don't get overwhelmed. And we love your feedback in general. So you can always comment over there. You can email us. We love it all. We appreciate you. Thanks for listening. And we'll see you soon for the next episode in just a few days.